Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Scott Silverman is a crisis coach. Uh, he helps people with family members uh, that struggle with alcohol addiction and with addiction overall. We talk a lot about the opioid epidemic, and we talk a lot about things that he is doing to change the way that America looks at substance abuse and the way that we treat substance abuse together. Uh, another guy with the TED Talk. How about that? All right, He's got his own day in San Diego. We talk about that a little bit. Uh, he's been honored by CNN as uh, you know one of the heroes that, that helps society move through stuff like this. Uh, he's got two books. He's got a podcast. We talk about it all. This is the guy that you want to lean on heading into the holidays, especially if you're trying not to drink, if you have a family member you're worried about. By the way, this guy's a, a crisis coach, and he's the president and CEO of Confidential Recovery, and he gives out his phone number on this podcast, and he wants anybody that has any questions about recovery, family members struggling with addiction, um, you know, give him a call. <laughs> he, he put it out there. I didn't. So Scott Silverman joins us from San Diego and just up north in Hermosa Beach, California, just north of San Diego, Kevin Souza. Hi there. How can I make your day better? Scott. Pete. Hey, you've already made it better by answering the phone, my man. Well, you threatened me a couple times that you're going to be calling, so I didn't want to piss you off. <laughs> are, are, you, are you in sunny San Diego right now? <clears throat> well, you know, it's a little cool today, and there's a 2% chance of rain, so they're closing schools. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is. My brother lives yeah. out there in Hermosa, and it's, uh, you know, south of you. Or I guess no, north is, of you. Uh, North, north, yeah. yeah. We're we're uh, we're just north of the border by about twenty minutes. But no, it's uh, you know great. It's great weather. San Diego's pretty. I grew up here, so it's pretty consistent. We're looking forward to hopefully not getting a brutal winter, whatever that might look like. But you know, who knows? Well, we don't. We just ignore it. You have, by the way, speaking of San Diego, doing a little research. You have your own day in San Diego. February nineteenth is Scott Silverman Day. That is correct. And and why is it Scott Silverman Day? It, it, it is what it was is the um, the mayor and the city council um, just nominated me and I came in and it was uh, just a real honor. So, you know, for my work in the community and the things that I did in my past, um, working with uh, people coming out of jail and prison and women coming out of jail and prison and working with the homeless. So it was just an acknowledgement of that work. So that was kind of cool. The county, the county did it. They used to have like a, a pet of the week. Yeah. And, and I was the very first human of the week. It was pretty, <laughs> it was, it was interesting going to the supervisor's chambers and people were pissed off going, wait, wait, where was that chihuahua was coming in from last week? And it was me. So, you know, that was, that was kind of a little bit of a letdown. But. Yeah. People love pets and uh, it's, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. I work in the news business and you can say, 
You know, right. unfortunately, right, you talk about what's going on. Hey, somebody was shot and killed. You move on to the next story. If you say something happened to a pet, you better look out because the phone's going to oh, yeah. start ringing and the, the emails are going to come in. Right. No, the, dri- yeah, the driver and the passenger were killed in the car and the pet was injured badly. <laughs> they don't even want to know who the driver and the passenger how is the How is the pet? Yeah, how is the pet? You know, it's interesting. When, when uh, what was it, a couple of years ago, there was a couple that went to a, a veterinarian to get some, is it Tramadol? Tramadol. Uh, for pain for the for the dog, and they actually found out that the dog was injured by the owners, and it, it, and they were tr- they were drug seeking, trying to get uh, some no. medication from the vet. No, so they were just they were just filleted in the community. Oh my gosh, to, they injured the do dog that. so they could score drugs. Correct. Wow. I mean, hey, and that's that's how we got here. You know, that's how, that, that's why I'm talking to you because I used to yeah. do crazy shit like that. Um, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, what's your point? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. They got delayed. They got, they got, somehow it got found out. And I think one of the vet assistants turned him in or something. And they, they didn't even give a hoot about the, the, the drug seeking. The fact that they were injured, their, they would dare to injure their animal yeah. to get the drugs. I mean, you know, it's just, it's kind of scary, but you know, you know, the behavior, you know, what happens and, it's only gotten worse, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, and you know the behavior, too. You're sober 35 years, and uh, we're going to talk about 30, a couple. 30, 37, th- actually. 37 years. On the 13th of this month, correct. I mean, and, and for me, I remember it was hard enough to get, you know, two days, so I'm not going to shortchange it two years, that's for sure. Um, well, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you go through stuff. You know how it is. There's, I, I mean, that. Ever since COVID, you know, I've, my own group's been on Zoom, so, but I'm so I'm going to three times more meetings than I used to. But you know, it's it's been an interesting time for for our world the last couple of years, especially people who you know need to have need, want, and desire have to have that social connection. It's been devastating. I've watched people in my home group, you know, they're, they're just they're not there now, and everyone's saying, "Well, they they went out, blah blah blah. Who's going to go get them?" Have you worked with people that have had, you know, some serious come downs or have fallen off uh, because of the pandemic? Oh yeah. oh yeah, a lot. Because that's as a crisis coach, that's what I do. I'm I'm kind of the guy that you know that in the my home group I've been going there for almost I guess 31 years, and so I'm kind of known as the you know not necessarily as the the first responder, but a guy who. You know, I give my phone number out all the time, so uh-huh. people call all the time and go, "Hey, you know, so and so went out. What do you think we should do?" And I said, "Well, what would you like to do? You know where they are? No. So, no, it happens a lot. I mean, I know for for fact, a, a buddy of mine who's a psychiatrist worked for the county that the first year of COVID, four county um, employees that were psychiatrists took their own life over the." over the separation because think about it you're in the people helping people business and you can't help people anymore you know and your you know your untreated trauma continues which is part of the reason maybe you got in the field it, it's just amplified and that's what's happened i think with substance use disorders with alcohol with vaping acting out and exercising ourselves domestic violence child abuse it's just um i was uh, i did my uh Ending the stigma podcast yesterday, talking to my buddy Fred, and he goes, "Oh my God, Scott, taking a long trip in a motorhome with you would be miserable." Because <laughs> <laughs> as a as a subject matter expert, I do have a plethora of data around, you know. But but the goal is to just help create systemic change. Yeah, and and I love that you are. 
smashing the stigma or working working to do it because there's so much work to be done. That's one of the main reasons of this podcast is to, you know, for people to be, not everybody, I know I didn't feel super comfortable walking into my first meeting, but this is an opportunity for people to drop in and, and, and hear what's going on and hear what's on the other side of addiction. I mean, there's this, there's this great life. And now it's difficult, right, to find that great life. You got to do the work. But it really is a terrific life. I mean, I I don't think about not drinking anymore. I, I mean, once in a while, of course, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I, stuff, stuff floats through my mind. Um, and I and I respect the disease. I'm like, oh, yeah, there, there it is. You know, if I walk by a Coors Light uh, can on the ground, I'm like, that would be nice. You know, and then it's like, wow, you know, still got it. But, you know, there is a real good life. Now I deal with life on life's terms or try to, right? And, uh, you know, breaking the stigma is part of that, I think, just kind of putting it all out there. No, I I agree. It's funny. Earlier you said uh, people, you know, you you weren't comfortable when you went into your first meeting. I have found that anybody who's comfortable that comes into their first meeting is more than likely loaded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great call. You know, why would you, why would you be here and feel comfortable? I mean, this is just like, you know, this, this is an alternative to drinking. It's, it's a way of changing your life, but you know, and it's pretty depressing. I mean, there's science around this whole thing, Pete, that, you know, you stand up at a meeting and you go, hi, I'm Scott. I'm addict alcoholic. There is psychology behind the fact that in many ways, just doing that in some ways contributes to the stigma a and B also reinforces the, the negative um, connotation that there's, you're broken. Wow. Yeah. I, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. Well, think about it. I yeah. mean, if you stood up every day and said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm fat or I'm uncomfortable or I'm ugly or nobody wants to be with me. And you just repeated that. It's, 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 it's a negative reinforcement. And most people walk around with, you know, untreated trauma. And a lot of this is just anecdotal experiential, but there's a lot of studies around it too, but I've just been, doing this long enough now that's it hopefully gives me a, a better insight to helping families because when you know when they when families call me in crisis you know it's not about hey we were just thinking johnny might have a, you know they're on the, the kid's on fire it's a crisis and the kid and the kid's 37 years old yeah and the family's been trying for 15 years to do it one way I said, well how's that working for you so you know this is I a, try to intervene on that behavior this is a broad question but what do you tell those families that call you up and say my, my son, Rick, is 37. He's an opioid addict. He continues mm-hmm. to steal from us and take our car to, you know, wherever. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what do you tell him? Well, the first thing I tell him, you know, is your son has a disease, you know. And, and if, you, if we were talking about diabetes, we would not allow y- your son to go throughout the day without checking his blood sugar level. And if he needed insulin, putting insulin in his body. And we would support his diet. If we needed to walk, we'd walk with him. We do all those things. But for some reason, when it comes to addiction, but when someone's deeply in their addiction, it's important to, you've got to set up some speed bumps. Uh, sometimes you've got to change the locks. You have to heighten your awareness. You have to change the way you communicate. Uh, and you have to listen differently. And you may even have to change your language with somebody who is, you know, uh, on that path and is not hearing anything that works logically. And that's where a guy like me comes in and can start to, you know, translate a language that might be a little more helpful to the individual. But, but it's amazing. You know, most relapses, 75% of relapses take place from families who get in the way. And, and not because they're trying to get in the way, but they're trying to love the person to wellness. 
And the problem is that codependent behavior in many cases will use the trigger words that causes someone to relapse. So it's about language. A lot of it is. Well, a lot of it's just listening, you know, you know, and, and a lot of it's just learning that maybe the language you're using isn't appropriate, meaning you're, you're fighting with each other, which is only making it worse for everybody. Yeah. So why, why keep doing it? So, you know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. When we, when we start to get in, in, into some of your results, we will in a second, but I want to go backwards a little bit and just talk about your story. 37 years ago, you hit some kind of breaking point or something happened where you got sober. Take us back and, and, and tell us, you know, and not don't give me your story. I don't want, want, want to waste your time. But, you know, what happened that, that, that got you sober? To be honest, I was in, it was, I was in a business trip to New York. And um, I, I didn't like flying, so when I flew for business, I would usually, because you know, like going back to New York, I take that 7 a.m. out of San Diego into JFK, and I drank because I could, and it relaxed me. And I really had a problem on the plane. I I, um, I drank way too much at the bar, and then I got on the plane, and I ended up uh, taking some <laughs> the miniatures off the cart without you know, because I just didn't want to, I don't really want to buy them, didn't want to spend the money, or just, you know, who, who orders nine minis? Mini? So I, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't want to embarrass myself and look like I had a drinking problem, you know, at 7.15 a.m. in the morning going to New York on a full flight, you know, on American Airlines. So anyway, I did that, and it got worse, and then uh, I ended up um, actually taking some money off of the, uh, the uh, bar cart, and somebody saw me and reported me. And then when I went to get off the plane, um, New York's finest actually boarded the plane before they let anybody off. And I realized they're there for me. So I, I took my shirt and changed it real quick because I had a change in my briefcase and then, you know, flipped my coat around. Anyway, yeah. they followed me out. Then they grabbed me and, and uh, handcuffed me. And we did a little interview. And, you know, I said, hey, look, I got to go to the bathroom. And while I'm sitting there, I'm explaining that, you know, if you can find it, you can, you know, you can, you can hang, you know, hang me up. And they, they couldn't find the money, so I got away. Yeah, so anyways, that's, that's that second forward. I just had a week of blackout drinking. and In New uh, York? In New York City, yeah. I was one of those, actually, literally, on th- I, was, I got there, I think it was Sunday night. And Thursday night, I got into some sort of situation and then passed out literally across from the train station. I mean, I was, you know, three-piece suit, London Fog, rain jacket. You know, in what, what line of work were you in? Were you in like in- Re- retail, retail clothing business? My okay. family was in the retail clothing business. So I was there on a trip with, a, you know, 14 other people. Um, my job was, you know, we were doing some offshore um, bidding on some potential, uh, you know, cotton goods that were coming out of the Orient. This is high end stuff. It, it was a pretty good sized business. Yeah. We had it at our peak. We had uh, the family had almost 400 employees. So it was. You know, and I grew up in the family business, so I was, you know, in a pretty good position, but I was, you know, I was out of control at the end there. Anyway, so that morning, um, I, was, I, was, I woke up, and, and my wedding ring was on my other hand. I had knots in my head, and I couldn't find my ID or my, you know, traveler's checks I carried in those days and my airline ticket. Everything was gone. It was like 4 in the morning, so I called downstairs. I mean, oh, Mr. Silverman, we're, we're so glad to hear from you. <laughs> Um, when you get a second, could you come down and talk with us? So, you know, I showered and I was just, I had no idea. I had a full life of blackout. I had no idea what happened. So I went down they said, uh, first of all, we want to invite you to never come back to our hotel. 
I said, oh, okay. And they, I said, what happened? They said, well, you, you were picked up by, by New York's finest, and you were brought to us. You were completely unconscious, and we just put you on the luggage rack and wheeled you up to your room, and security has your ID, your traveler's checks, and your airline ticket. Please go see them, and uh, again, please never come back and stay with us. So evidently it was pretty bad. Anyway, so that morning I <laughs> that sounds I got, like it, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't remember I you know, I black I, I didn't have any idea what happened. Yeah. I knew I was in bad shape and I smelled like alcohol and I had to meet my team that morning, you know, and I was senior VP at the time. So I just told everybody, Hey, go ahead, get started and I'll pick you up later this morning. And I got to this guy's office and I just thought, I can't explain this. How am I gonna explain this? Yeah. And I'm sitting in his office and I said, can I have a couple minutes? He goes, yeah, go ahead. I could use the phone. I said, you know, and then I just realized that this is, this is horrible. I, that I'm not coming out of this one with an easy explanation. So I just started to think, you know what? Maybe it's just best I just stop and end and, and my own life and just put everybody else out of their misery and myself included. And it was a one day in New York. It was in November. And I remember the window was open in his office. So I stepped up to the windowsill and I just started to lean back. And I was just, I was going to jump out the window. And, wow. and this is, this is my, 37 years ago, like right around now. This was actually November the um, 11th. Shit. Okay. 1984. Yeah. So 37 years ago, this coming uh, 11th of November. My sober day is the 13th because when I, I went to the uh, facility, I, um, I was on some, prescription meds for two days. So I wanted to, you know, start my sober date two days later, which I did. So bottom line is, so I, you're leaning on the, hold on, you're leaning out this window and, yeah. and you're thinking about this is it. I'm just going to go. I'm well, gonna... I'm up, I'm up on the 44th floor. Yeah. It was 44th floor. And, you know, it was a hot day. I'm sweating, you know, and when you drink like that, you know, every pore is just you know, exuding alcohol smell and I, and I stains on my shirt. And I knew when I got out of that office, I was going to have to meet with the team, my colleagues, and explain. Because I'd actually been gone for four days. Yeah. Nobody knew where I was, including me. <laughs> I didn't know where I was. I was just <laughs> drinking in bars and getting in fights because I had knots in my head and my knuckles hurt. And, you know, I'm not a fighter. It was just, it was just a weird thing. Were and, drugs a part of your story at all? Only during waking hours. Okay. All right. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not breaking it down. I certainly can if you want. I'm gonna have yeah, to no, no. I was just week. curious. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. No, I, I was poly drug. Okay. Uh, I'll give. I'll give you a list if you're really curious. No, but, I'm good. You know, so, so anyway, um, I start salivating when I get into detail. So I'm sitting there, and and I remember in my head, my mom had said to me, you know, suicide is selfish, and and that kind of resonated with me that day, that morning. And then as I'm moving my butt back to to just, I was just gonna lean back and think, you know what? I won't feel a thing, and and I'll put you know my, no more you know you know hardship on my wife. I, I wouldn't have to explain what my behavior is. I wouldn't, wouldn't have to keep apologizing every time we went out socially or went to a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something. So it was just like, oh my god, I feel great. I, it's it's going to be over soon. And then the guy walks in his office and hey, what are you doing, man? You're going to fall out the window. <laughs> and, and that was the divine intervention with my mom's voice in my head, and realizing you know. We had we were married two years. We hadn't had children yet. We've been trying. So I thought, well, I hesitated for a second, and I said, I'll be right in. And then I got off the windowsill, went to the phone, called my wife. I was crying, and I said, tell Gary, who was the psychiatrist I was seeing at the time, tell him I'm ready. Um, I'll call you in a couple hours, and um, 
we'll, we'll unveil all this to the family tonight, and I'm, I'm ready to check in to wherever he wants me to go tomorrow. And that's how I got into treatment. I literally went in that morning, Saturday morning. It was a Friday night. I flew back, and that's when my journey of recovery started. What, what happened to you that I'm talking to you now, and you've got this, like, vibrant, positive energy how did you, I mean, obviously you could talk forever about this uh, and, and you so eloquently can, but how did you go from the guy who was falling out of the window on purpose to the man you, you are now? What, did, what, what are some of the things you did? Well, first of all, I did everything that was suggested. And, and, you know, and I'd never been to a recovery meeting. You know, I'd never gone into a 12-step program or any kind of rehab or detox. I really, you know, I, I believe that this is a disease of denial. I certainly suffered from it. And, you know, I never really had an active family member who had been, you know, in this kind of condition or situation. There had been mental health issues in my family and eating and gambling, but nothing quite like this. So I never really saw it. And I, I wasn't really at the level of my consumption and anesthetization, if you will. I, there weren't many people that could keep up with me. So I was kind of alone towards the end of my drinking and using. And, so I, when I went into rehab, I mean, I remember the first message I got, I'd been given Valium so I wouldn't, you know, go through any DTs or anything while I was detoxing. And I remember my very first meeting that night, it was Saturday night, it was a bunch of old guys, and they, they went around the circle, there was probably 15, 20 of us, I can't remember, and said, that any of the newcomers have any questions? And I can remember opening my mouth and saying, you know, you know, I couldn't <laughs> form, any, form any words, you know, but then I said something like, how does this, how does this program work? You know, and they said, well, just listen. And, you know, and I thought, I don't even know what that means. And then they asked again, that seemed like an hour had gone by. And they said, any of the newcomers have any, any other questions? And I said, how does this, you know, program work? probably came out differently and they go you just need to shut up and listen and i thought i don't like this place already it hasn't even been a day you know and that was my first message and i really hung on to that so because i i knew a lot about mood altering substances i was a i'm a retired unlicensed pharmacist i understood most medication how to mix it when to take it i mean at, at my worst i was taking um LSD and clear light form, clear light acid, and, and it was dissolvable, you know, as it came that way. And I used to use it and put it in my eyeballs so it would go through my tear duct to get to my brain quicker. Wow. That's how I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I like to think of myself as an inspirational drug seeker. <laughs> so, anyway, I just, I did everything I was supposed to do. I basically, I took suggestions. I changed my playmates, play places, friends. Uh, I even left my family business because it was recommended that, you know, my level of, um, you know, pace that I was keeping w w was killing me. So I started all over. I went on to went down to state work, state of California workers comp, and I found out what I was eligible for, and I got a disability, and I changed everything, everything. My friends, you know, the only one I kept was one friend and and, and my wife, and that was it. My family. So and I started. You went to any lengths. I, I think I went even further because it seemed like, uh, you know, and, and, and there's the caution to that because you know, in, in the book it talks about don't change your bar stool, you know, for a, a, a seat in, in recovery because you, you being suffering from maladaptive behavior, you know, compulsive obsessive behavior, it, that doesn't go away. You just yeah. manage it differently. So, yeah, I did everything they told me to do. I mean, I, I worked the steps. I went to meetings. I volunteered. Four years later, I'm getting this award 
at my treatment center for 4,000 hours of volunteer work. And I'm thinking, what? I, you know, they were tracking. You sign in. I didn't realize they were tracking my hours. And it was just, you know, they'd never seen that before at the treatment center. So I ended up getting uh, offered a job to run the alumni program, which I did uh, on a contract basis for a couple of years. So I was, yeah, I was really involved with recovery, which was unusual because, you know, first of all, being Jewish and, and, and then going to AA, and AA is basically a Christian-based program. I know people were criticizing me. I mean, I was in treatment. My rabbi came to visit me, yeah. and he said, you know, Scott, Jewish people do not have drinking problems. I go, Rabbi, this ID bracelet I'm wearing, and everybody around here, you know, has a drinking problem, and I believe I do. He goes, well, God is within us, and God doesn't want us to have drinking problems. I said, well, God is within us. He's got to be a drunken fool because I was just with him for a week in New York. So I'm telling you, I was shit-faced for a week. So God's a party animal. Anyway, the rabbi really got pissed at me, and he left. And, and, that that know, must mom, have been my, that must have been different, difficult though, because we're looking to compare ourselves out, and oh, so yeah. that that's the escape hatch right there. But you know, being a, a Jewish guy in, in in the rooms, what is that like? Well, you know, it's interesting because it, 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 my sponsor was a devout Catholic. And it was funny how we kind of met. God was in treatment. He came and spoke. And he was just at the other spectrum. And I was really, you know, uh, I, you know I was ministered that I was confirmed. But a lot of it was just because that's what, you know, I was told to do as a kid. You do this. We do this, you know. And he told me, he says, you know, until you learn how to pray on your knees, you know, you're going to have a hard time getting that spiritual connection. And I said, Brian, I, I can't pray on my knees. I went and checked with the rabbi. He goes, no, we don't do that. I said, but they're telling me if I don't, I run a risk of potentially relapsing. And I said, I don't want to do that. So he told me, we came up with this idea of smoking cigarettes back in those days. Yeah. He said, when you go to bed at night, take your pack of cigarettes, throw them underneath the bed. So when you wake up in the morning and you reach underneath the bed, you grab your cigarettes, you find yourself on your knees, just thank God for getting you through another day. That's how I learned to pray on my knees. And that's how habits start a lot of times, uh, it, you know, in the, th throughout this whole process. So now you're, you're the president and CEO of Confidential Recovery. You're a crisis coach. The laundry list of positive work you have done throughout the country uh, and, and in California, San Diego area especially, is unbelievable. Talk a little bit about why you think people coming out of prison, coming out of jail, um, why, why they deserve that second chance and, and, and deserve to be integrated into society? Well, uh, first of all, I believe everyone deserves a second chance. Second of all, I believe that there are human beings who have, if we're talking about somebody who was originally incarcerated behind some activity dealing with substance use disorder or some form of addiction, when we put people in prison, we just make the problem worse. Yeah. We, there is you know, no, if anybody that's ever been on a prison commitment can tell you, you know, th through recovery rooms that it is like you show up there and, and, and they don't, they're, they're dying. A lot of them are dying for the treatment, you know, and they don't, mm -hmm. they, they don't get it. No, they don't get it. Not only do they not get it, but in many cases, the availability of mood altering substances in long-term incarceration facilities is significant because it's a captive audience and you know as a distributor you know as somebody who used to do this as a for a living selling drugs you know you're going to go where it's easier you know to find 100 people that'll buy your drugs versus one at a time on a street corner you know you which used to be the way it was done in the old days 
you go to a friend's house and a friend brought something over. But if you wanted to make some money and move and move product quickly, <clears throat> you you wanted a big audience, and that's what happened, and that's the way it worked. But so, you know, and I got involved with you know this organization I started called Second Chance, and I was working specifically with people coming out of jail and prison. Everyone asked me why why would you do that, and I got to tell you, Pete, I don't know. It was just kind of it was organic the way I got there, and being a homeless provider, you know, uh, it just. It just felt right. I mean, you know, you're in the, the trenches way. doing this stuff. I mean, that's, you know, that's God's yeah. work. It, it was, you know, I didn't, it, there were some days I was in the trenches. Yeah, we, I, went to, I went to some weird places. But, you know, it just, when I learned, once I learned more about how to work with people, I found people that were suffering from what I call long-term institutionalization. And, you know, they were incarcerated and they suffered from what I call criminogenic thinking. Once they got out, if you could create an environment for them where you become their new gang, if you will, or their new family, or you create um, an environment where they can actually grow and produce and feel good about themselves and build self-esteem, you can start to really help people change direction. So, you know, because the bad habits that they had, they're a hundred times worse in prison because in prison, you know, and I've not never been there, but. I worked with thousands of men and women coming out of prison. You know, their job was to survive. No matter what they did each day, their job was to survive. And those survival skills, we taught people how to transfer those survival skills and put them into a direction that would benefit them. So all I did was kind of repackage, if you will, or redirect or help people kind of deflect a little bit using their skill sets. Because most people who can survive in prison have a huge amount of skill sets. And we just taught people how to use those in the workplace. And we found we were getting people's jobs at a faster pace than most unemployment agencies were. Can you give me an example of how you would repackage somebody's skills into helping okay. them get sober? <laughs> somebody, let's just say for somebody was a sling. Somebody was a drug distributor, Okay. Um, and they'd say, well, you know, Scott, I, 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 all I did was sell drugs and, and that's what I knew. I said, okay, so let's just break that down. First of all, you're, you're good at marketing. Second of all, you have a sales background. Third, you have a distribution system that you've worked on. And fourth, you found ways to not get caught until you got caught. So, you know, you can escape and evade. You've got some great articulation. You're probably a facilitator. You might be a manipulator. And you've got some tremendous survival skills. So let's use some of those attributes and put them on your resume and then use those skills to move you into a career path that will help you get to your end goal. I'm sure it's pretty amazing to see the light come on in people and, and to see them use those skills to become a better person or just to contribute. Oh yeah. The, you know, the, the most successful clients I ever worked with were women and w watching women <clears throat> who'd spent a lot of their adult life incarcerated, you know, and if they were mothers, when they, when they got out, their level of self-esteem around getting a job was just non-existent. You know, I, I've never worked. I, all I, all I've ever done is, you know, I've raised three children. And I said, well, let's break that down you know, housing engineer, facilitator, a volunteer recruiter, a transporter, a motivator, an academic inspirator, you know, a disciplinarian, a cook, whatever, you know, <laughs> and, and you list, you list all those skills, you know, because we used to have a big sign on the wall. I, used to, I remember thinking about it. I'm getting chills. It used to say, I'm just a mom. 
and it was it was always we always kept it folded up and then when we flipped it down there was like you know 84 skill sets to just be a mom and we would we would suggest that they pick the top 10 that they love the most and then we framed that path and getting them jobs was easy i mean getting them into career paths was easy you know and then and then i started working with uh, veterans back in the day and i'm doing it now in a very big way with confidential recovery and, and because veterans who had criminal histories, the the, the veteran system would not support them. Literally, wow. it was amazing. the The veteran system is you had a career path of uh, criminality. You could not get um, disability. You couldn't get access to treatment. You couldn't stay in subsidized housing. So we helped them, and we were we were getting veterans jobs left and right, left and right, left and right. And I, then I got people that criticize me and saying, how is it you're getting more jobs for the veterans than the veterans providers are? And I said, you know what? You guys set up a meeting. I'll come speak to your group. So two months later, I go to this group. It's a funny story, I think. And they go, they're all pissed off going, you know, you're making us look bad and you're taking our money. I said, my earmark money came from a congressman who nearly got arrested a couple of years ago in our community. And I said, the money was for ex-offenders who were veterans, and you don't serve that population. So I brought the money to our community, which I see as a, a big plus. You, you weren't denied the opportunity. You couldn't compete for it. And I said, I didn't even compete for it. The congressman did on our behalf because he thought the work we were doing to reduce recidivism for people returning to prison was a good thing. So I sit in this room, and they're all like humping and rumping, you know. You know, you know, you know so, so what's the secret, Scott? I said, well, l- let me put it to you this way. What I found, and I, you know, I'm a social entrepreneur, and I grew up in a retail business, so I understand helping people get to the next level because you know, life's all about relationships. Yeah. So I said what I do every day is I make a phone call to a business person who runs a business, middle management, B-level, C-level, A-level executives, and I ask them if they'd be willing to hire veterans. Well, we do all that too. I said, well, yeah, but I ask, and I do some research on the calls before I make them to make sure that I'm talking to somebody who's a veteran. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so all I did was ask veterans to hire veterans. That's my secret. <laughs> You're all welcome to it. It was pretty funny. Yeah, well, I bet that was p- part of a seismic shift, getting those guys and girls well, jobs. Yeah, the path of least resistance. And, and then I, I, one of my other big home runs is uh, NASCO, which is one of the largest shipbuilders here on the West Coast. You know, uh, when after 9-11, you know, getting anybody placed anywhere where there was a federal contract, you know, if they had any kind of criminal background, you, you couldn't do it. Yeah. So I, I, I met a, a, a guy who did subcontract work with them who I knew through somebody else, and we sat and met, and I explained to him. I said, you know, people who suffer from I call disease of alcoholism or they're allergic to it, but the state of California considers them permanently disabled. So why don't you hire our graduates who are permanent? Most, like 90%, had an alcohol issue or substance use disorder and use them as a minority group, so to speak, or disabled group to fit into your contract. So he went back and checked, and he said he could. His first year, he hired 40 of our graduates. And that's, you know, somebody caring about these people with these issues and finding a way to, like you said, I like how you said repackage, rebrand. Because when we repackage ourselves – in recovery, we really are good people who can contribute and who can make a difference. Uh, 
you're one of those guys. One of the things you're doing to make a difference uh, is you talk to people about addiction uh, versus the holidays, right? Is that what we're talking about here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So we're coming up on the holidays. This is such a perfect time. I'm sitting here talking to you in early November. We call it the Bermuda Triangle, right? You got you got Thanksgiving, you have Christmas, you have New Year's. I mean, you can even throw in the Super Bowl. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you tell folks that either have some, first of all, what do you tell people that are worried about drinking during the holidays? Well, I think first and foremost, which is something interesting that I learned that we did a study uh, in my old organization, a three-year study. And what we found was it's really hard, but when people have been in the system, they, they usually get become disenfranchised families, you know, whether it's their behavior or the, the family just wants to step away or they want to build distance. What was fascinating, though, to follow up with our clients, we had the hardest time. What we found out was the largest, greatest time that people come home to visit mom, if you will, is Thanksgiving. Okay. So w- w- the, the college that did a study with us brought in like 80 interns, okay, and, and on Thanksgiving Day, they went through the database and started calling to check on Johnny. Hey, Johnny, how's it going? Because Johnny was home visiting his mom and most people would put down their mom <clears throat> as an emergency contact. Uh-huh. So that's how we followed up in the study. So I learned over the years, my own experience, because I got, you know, I wanted to treatment during the holidays. Most people say, well, why would you go to treatment during the holidays? Why don't you wait till January? I said, well, I was trying to kill myself. I thought <laughs> postponing wasn't going to be advantageous or work to my advantage. So what I tell families is this, you know, and, and look, this is the first year kids have gone away for a while because of COVID. And now they're going to be coming home. And my sense is because of COVID and because of quarantines that people have gone through, especially young people, they've learned a lot of new tips and tricks about how to, you know, uh, move into consuming edibles or legalized marijuana or, you know, vaping or, you know, all the issues with counterfeit medication. So they're coming home now for the first time in a while. And if they have if they had an issue before and it got worse when they were at school and they're coming home, they're going to come home pretty hot. Yeah. And families, families are going to want to fix them. And that just doesn't work. You know, you know, you can't sit Johnny down after being gone for five months and say, okay, you know, everyone's going to be here. And, you know, Uncle Bob drinks a lot. And Aunt Isabel, you know, is still taking those pain pills. And when you sit down to dinner, you know, you can't, you can't be like them. You can't drink and you, we don't want you taking any drugs. And if you do, we're going to kick you out of the house. I mean, those are all fighting words. Those are all trigger words. Those are all non-engagement words. Those are all shame-based words. So having that kind of conversation with a loved one just is not going to add value. So, you know, what I suggest to families is, look, before they get home, talk about how, you know, how you're feeling. Talk about cares and concerns that you might have. And hopefully you've been talking with your child through the, you know, through the year. And if something's going on, you have a sense of it, but you may not. And then all of a sudden it's going to pop up when they get home. So rather than try to intervene on it, you know, reach out for help. It's just not something, you know, if somebody broke their leg, I mean, you don't go to YouTube and go, okay, Bob, hold them down. You, know, <laughs> you take them to the ER, you know, you take your son or daughter to the emergency room and let the experts work on it. So, you know, why we do this with, with substance use disorders and mood altering substances and addiction, why we try to tell ourselves it, it's okay, we will love them and they'll be all right. They have a disease, and they're in their disease, and this allergy they have to whatever they're taking is causing them harm, and we need to love them 
but we need to love them in a way where we're making decisions that are going to benefit them, not us, if you will. Because it's a selfish disease. The person who's doing it is selfish because they want to stay high, and the family wants them to stop, and they're selfish, but they don't know how to do it. And and now it's such a high stakes game. I mean, you talk about, you know, you wrote a book about opioid addiction and the opioid crisis. I mean, you know, in our book, it says, hey, go out if you're not sure you're an alcoholic and try some controlled drinking. Well, now, you know, you can't say, hey, go go out and, and go ahead and, and shoot some or, or snort some fentanyl, uh, you know, like because people are dying. Right. Uh, so yeah. it is it's so important that these messages that you're passing along to parents that hopefully people are implementing them into their care for their children because it is you got to turn it over to the experts this is life this is life or death right or or you as a family member thank you for that as a family member get educated you talk to an expert you know there's a lot of them out there i mean i like to think i'm one of the leading experts in the country and, you know, I'll take your call anytime, 619-993-2738, 619-993-273. You call or text me anytime. The I'll man. get back to you. Well, so let me let me go to your point you just made because I, I just heard this three months ago from this old guy at a meeting. He said, you know, everybody thinks with willpower you can really control things. And we all love this one, Pete. I hope you are. He said, next time you have diarrhea, you use your willpower. <laughs> it was so funny. You know, what a great example because it's like you cannot control that. It ain't happening. Yeah, well, you cannot control that. What about – Anyway, that. Yeah, you, you, I love that, by the way, You or I don't love it. Uh, so you and I were lucky enough. Um, my first round of holidays, I was in treatment. I went to – I went to treatment for 30 days, and then I went to an extended care place, basically a halfway house, for another five months. So I had like six months, you know, institutionalized. And I tell people it was the best thing I ever did. You know, a guy told me once, hey, it's a couple months for the rest of your life, and I truly believe that turned out to be true. Um, I it, it was a great place to be for that first round of holidays. I mean, I turned to my friend Tim during Thanksgiving – in rehab and I said you'll never forget this Thanksgiving and he just looked at me with a scowl but with a sense of humor too like how how could you you know and uh and Christmas I was in a a halfway house and New Year's I was in a halfway house and I felt like I built up the self-esteem by not drinking during those holidays and having that tribal atmosphere with other people that were trying to stay sober that that really carried me uh through holidays after that what do you tell people that aren't that lucky as you or I were, or or they consider themselves maybe at the time unlucky. How do you tell them to approach the holidays? If if I just stopped drinking and now I'm faced with Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and all the bullshit in between. Well, anybody who has had an issue with it, who decides they're you know tomorrow I'm going to stop drinking. First of all, you know ninety nine percent of the human race cannot do that. You just cannot do that. You cannot flip a switch. Uh, if your body, is, mind, and soul is physically addicted to something that's mood altering, you can't flip a switch. So don't even try. So, so that being said, you know it's one of those kind of you know it's not a gray area. It's black and white. You're just risking potential medical harm, and you're potentially going to make yourself sick. And if you decide, well, I'm you know I'm going to switch. I'm not going to drink anymore during the holidays. I'm you know going back to my home state. Marijuana is legal. I'm just going to smoke marijuana. Well, you know you can make yourself really sick. And, you know, it's happening right now, you know, look, 240 
overdoses every day behind opioids, every day, 240 in this country, every single friggin' day, that many people are dying behind opioids. And most of it's counterfeit, meaning you're taking something in your body that you think is X and it's actually Y. We're seeing that so often with fentanyl now. Yeah. And fentanyl, you know, anybody can make it. Oh, you know, you can get it online. You can get it mailed to you by the USPS. And it, you can put it in anything, and we're seeing it now everywhere, from marijuana to vaping pipes, in cocaine, with crack, with heroin. And, you know, and it's being disguised in the counterfeit world. You know, for example, Xanax. Yeah, that's one of the big ones. I mean, some people, they haven't got to vitamin C yet, but eventually they will. Oh, it's vitamin C, take it. Well, if it's cut with fentanyl, the odds are you're going to potentially, somebody's going to overdose. Have you heard, by the way, have you heard of Skittle parties? No. Skittle parties are, are you, know, you know what Skittles are. Oh, yeah. Imagine you go to this party, everybody comes in, they bring their drug of choice, and they put it in this bowl. And at a certain time of the night, somebody you know, metaphorically rings a bell or plays a certain song, everybody goes to the bowl and grabs something. Well, what if one of your friends just got a bunch of counterfeit Xanax with fentanyl? So you heard about these events where people, you know, they go to these parties, eight people overdose, and, and you know, two didn't survive. That's what's happened. People are just taking such risks right now. And the thing that's interesting is, you know, in my day, there was nothing I wouldn't put in my body. Yeah. You know, but, but the difference is the level of toxicity. And to me, when I think about counterfeit medication, it's poison. It's not even a drug. I mean, it's a drug, but it's masking something dangerous, which to me is poison. So when yeah. you think about that, as a, you know, as a 18, 19, 20-year-old, 20 22-year-old, when you think about going to a party and taking something that you don't know what it is, you could be taking poison. And and what I try to just do with families is just impress upon people because, you know, you're not going to stop an addict. You're not going to tell a kid, don't do that. I mean, I wrote a book called, my first book called Tell Me No, I Dare You. Yeah. 70% of the people told no, you know, they'll stop, but they're not going to stop doing something like that. And according to science, that part of the brain, when it hears don't do something, it basically, the, cheer, the cheerleading section stands up and the band starts playing, going, let's go for it. Uh, so, our, you know, my mind is, is programmed. I'm wired that way. And it's the ad know, we're talking about the addict's mind, obviously. Right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Because yeah. you were saying, you know, what, what does the other person do? The for person sure. coming home, they have to reinforce. They have to, first of all, they have to accept the fact they might have an issue. They might have an allergy. They might be allergic to this stuff. And I try to use a soft word. It's really, they might be addicted. They might be predisposed. Some people get diabetes. Some people don't. Some people get skin cancer. Some people don't. Some people have heart failure. Some people don't. But right now, according to science, 15% of our country will have an active addiction issue arise in the next 12 months. But what's even more fascinating, Pete, is those 15%, when they're impaired or they're coming off of their impairment, they will in, impact seven people negatively in their life every day. And that's it right so do, there. Yeah. You do, you do the math. Seven out of 10 will be impacted negatively and 15% have the actual, you know, they're pulling the trigger, so to speak, on the event. That's 85% of our population. Is being, is being impacted by this stuff, you know, addicts <laughs> right. are putting in their bodies. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, and our governor in California, he just earmarked a hundred million dollars to make it easier for the marijuana industry to get licensed and, and certified and open up shops. 
yeah. literally three months ago, you know, before his recall thing was, and he, you know, he, you know, and I, and I think Gavin Newsom's a good governor, but where is the logic and and thinking that you know we've got to help the marijuana distributors? And you know what? Right now, according to all of the street talk, the legal marijuana business in, in all the states that are legal, their business is off because the non-legal marijuana, you know, growers are selling their product, which is just as good, for a third less. Oh, wow. Because they're not being taxed. Yeah. You know, and if you're, and if you're, you're going to take substances in your body, and you, you, you know, someone says, well, this is 10, and that's 7, it's the same thing. But it doesn't matter what it is, you know, whether it's food or clothes or shoes or cars, this is, this is 30% less than that. It's the same thing, which would you like? You know, there are some people that probably proudly go into legal marijuana shops and go, I'm supporting the state. Exactly, of right. Well, yeah. Uh-huh. And not after the lottery fiasco. You know, there, you know, billions are still being passed out and schools are still struggling. And we spend, California, we spend 50% more money on prison than we do on education. So, you know, and I don't want to make political positions. I'm just saying. No, that you're it, stating it, facts. It, it, it's, it's counterintuitive to me that we, and look, we're actually going to have more people probably die behind the opioid crisis over time than COVID. That's and, what I you know, wanted to get, get get with you on uh, on the opioid crisis. So you're just right. saying well, over time more people are going to die from the opioid crisis than COVID. Right, and we're not doing anything about it. I mean, right now we're trying to convince everybody they should get you know vaccinated. I'm going for my booster next week. So it, it, it's just we need to make it as important of a conversation as other things because if we keep going to 240 a day, by the way, that is just opioids. I'm not talking about methamphetamine. I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm not even talking about, you know, you and I haven't even talked about behavioral health, mental yeah. health issues, depression, anxiety, untreated trauma, PTS. We haven't even discussed that. And those are all things that are existing in almost every family in some way, some shape or some form in today's world. And, you know, our quarantine the last couple of years has made it a lot worse, especially for those who had no tools. And now their problems amplified. They still don't have the tools. And at the end of the day, you know, the way the treatment world is working, because that was gone, it went, it went virtual as well, which changes things. Because the social model, you know, people getting together, talking about what's going on, is probably scientifically one of the best, but there's still a 95% relapse rate. You know, if you, yeah. when you went to treatment, if you did nothing after treatment, nothing, okay, but you went to the best place in the world, and you spent 28 days being the perfect inpatient client, and then you got home and did nothing. The, the chances are you have a 95% chance of relapsing with no follow-up. That's how high it is. Yeah. Did you see, I, I, I don't want to keep you here all day, but I got a couple other things I want to ask you. Do you see a way out of this opioid crisis? Is there a way out? What, what do you, you know, you wrote a book on this. Uh, what yeah. did you find, uh, you know, as far as what we're looking at here as a country, um, you know, or globally going forward? Well, first of all, there's no vaccination for it, okay? And, and, and it's completely apolitical. It, it's not a Democratic, not a Republican, not a progressive, you know, whatever classification you want to put it. And it's not zip code specific. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or you don't have. I mean, certainly, if, you know, certain parts of the community that are economically challenged, there, there might be more of it per capita. But at the end of the day, it, you know, when you, when you look at the news, you don't, you know, you're reading about the, you know, high-level, you know, movie star or, or singer or musician, you know, or somebody who comes from a family. I just read somewhere that one of the, I don't know, one of the housewives daughter 
just admitted. Uh, I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Going to treatment. So I, I, I've always believed this hope and help, but, but the way this has accelerated and the fact that counterfeit medication is so wildly out there and that, you know, our, our leadership and our communities, you know, when, when people ask me, I'm actually getting ready to talk to a pretty powerful group here in a two weeks about this. We're going to, you know, they're going to bring me in professionally to speak specifically about this, which is unusual because they want to know and, and they want to hear. And so the fact that you and I are talking about it, I mean, this is significant, but it has to become as, as much of a conversation on a daily basis as the flu or as, you know, getting kids the proper education or making sure that, you know, we have food in kids' bellies and, and families are becoming self-sufficient. It's got to be part of that dialogue because with struggles and with barriers and with hiccups and speed bumps and challenges, um, and we, you know, as a world, we certainly went through a big couple of years of it, we're going to see more and more of this, especially in the U.S. because for some reason, you know, we're a much pill-oriented society. And, you know, look, think about this. The drug manufacturers, you know, the Mexican cartels that with the super labs, you know, the Chinese manufacturers of fentanyl. When you think about your consumer base, if you look at this as a business model, there's nothing better than the U.S. because there's no end to our consumption of it, and we can't get enough of it. And and now, you know, because of what when whatever the DOJ, you know, the DEA puts pressure you know, on whatever, you know mechanism they put it on the border airlines boats yeah you know the the, the manufacturers start shipping up the countries i mean just five months ago australia got two big shipping containers of methamphetamine and the rumors are some of it came from mexico some of it came from canada and some of it came from the u.s you know loaded up at some central point maybe the boats met somewhere in the water they you know loaded containers and took them to australia so now and then now you know and, and methamphetamine is you know, 10 times stronger than it was 10 years ago. Wow. So at the end of the day, that's what's going on with drugs today. Marijuana has a 90, 90% THC content. And if methamphetamine is 10 times stronger, imagine how much stronger cocaine is. Yeah, so and this is why people are dying. And by the way, we're not even talking about what you mentioned <clears throat> earlier, the counterfeits, though. Correct. And, and people are also dying because they're mixing drugs with such high intensity of toxicity with other drugs. And What's even worse, and this is what, you know, when, when Whitney Houston passed away, you know, I remember it was, I think it was Dr. Drew that for three days he was yelling and screaming and upset. And he goes, look, we've had musicians and famous people and wealthy people using heroin for decades. We've never seen the kind of overdose we're seeing now. And he says, I'm going to tell you what I think it is. He goes, people in this country are young people, you know, Adderall, Ritalin, you know, antidepressants, SSRIs, Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft. You mix those with street drugs, something happens to the body. And this is contributing, in my opinion, because uh, I agree with him, mm. to a lot of the overdoses that are going on. You know, because people thought, oh, it's just fentanyl. Well, no, fentanyl is yeah. very You know, it's 100 times stronger than heroin. And, and uh, mor morphine is 50 times stronger than heroin. So, and because the people that are putting this counterfeit medication together don't have any quality assurance that they have to maintain, <laughs> you know, and they're, and they're not overseen by the FDA or the DEA. They're making stuff that kills people. And to your earlier question about how are we going to stop this? I, first of all, we got to slow it down so we can have a conversation because if we don't slow it down, you know, and by the way, when I mentioned the 240 people that die every day from, you know, mostly Oxycontin, other opioids as well, a couple hundred people every day normally would be dying if it wasn't for naloxone, which is in Narcan meaning their overdose was reversed because now we have those 
that medication that can do that. So in reality, you know, it was uh, last month, I think, the company that makes naloxone or Narcan, you know, which is you know, made with naloxone and Narcan is the delivery system through nasal spray, said that they're out of product. The demand is too high and won't, won't be back up to speed until February. So if you think about that, that 240 a day could climb to 3, 325, Jesus, yeah. 350. So, you know, we really have to find a way to get the information. You know, and schools don't really want to put Narcan in because they don't want the responsibility. And you got kids that are bringing fentanyl to, to school because their sibling, their older sibling says, look, you carry this, I can't. Or they want to be like the big brother or big sister. And they're seeing it at schools. You, you saw the other day there was a, a family with a, a two, four, five-year-old that got a hold of the parent's stash of fentanyl and one of the kids died. The other two had to have Narcan to revive them. I did see that, yeah. I mean, what is, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I wish I could take a magic wand and just fix it, but, you know, um, I can't. And But you, you are you doing, know, so. you, you are doing, you know, everything in your power. Now, before we let you go, you, you, got a, you have a podcast, right? I do. And what's the podcast I called? I listened to it today. It's called- it's called Scott H. Silverman, uh, Happy Hour. I used the word happy hour because, you know, when my sponsor said, go to a meeting when you did most of your drinking, and I said, well, I drank in the morning, I drank at noon, and I drank at happy hour. He goes, okay, just go to happy hour. Just go day. to happy hour. <laughs> and you pick, got- pick one of those pick little three, so I, I kind of put a spin on it. It's called happy hour, and, and uh, you know, it's on the normal social media platform, and we talk about, you know, I've been the guest, and I got, you know, people like the DA, the sheriff, and the DEA, different experts come in and people in recovery and uh, a variety of different people. That and I just interviewed a guy. He wrote a book called Prehab. It's kind of interesting, uh, the whole concept about the disease itself and how to, you know, how, how the assessment tools that we're currently using, even with the DSM-5s, um, aren't necessarily going to help somebody if they're not 100% willing. And he said, have you ever met an addict that's 100% willing to get better? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I said not yet. You know, not that wasn't you no know, handcuffed to a gurney in a coma. <laughs> you know? They're pretty motivated. So you got you got the podcast. You have you have you have a couple books. We're gonna link all this to, to our to our uh, to the podcast. We're we're gonna put up here tomorrow. And uh, you know, you, you got a TED talk. I mean, you were a CNN hero. You're you're a guy who is making a difference out there. And the fact that you spent a little time with with me today. Um, and, and continue to move the needle in the right direction uh, means a lot. No, I, I appreciate that. I hope so. And that's why I gave out my phone number because it's amazing how many people. <laughs> hey, more people, call, more I, people listen to this than you think, pal. I, I, I hope it's ringing off the hook. Hey, I want to drink from a fire hose because you know every time, and I'm one of those people. You know, a lot of people. My wife's in real estate, and every time she sees a strange number in her phone, you go, "Uh oh." You know, I I see a strange number. I pick, I picked up your number. I, I, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. You know, I, I see it as an opportunity to avoid going to a funeral. Yeah, and that's the truth. That's how man. I look at it. That's a business so I love it when people call. You know, I put my phone up at, you know, 9 o'clock when I go to sleep, and I don't get it till the next morning. But I return every phone call, and, and if there's anybody out there that I can help, you know, and if I can't help you, I promise you I can find a way to help point you in a direction to get help because it's everywhere, you know, and people don't realize that. And, and those three hardest words in the English language is I need help. Yeah. Scott. And people avoid it. You're a mensch, dude. I appreciate it. Thanks, Pete. I really uh, appreciate it. All right, and I'll send you this link tomorrow, man, and we'll get it out on okay. all the social media platforms. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this on on, uh, on KWTX station I work at. So I really appreciate you, dude. Call me anytime and bring me back anytime. And by the way, when somebody you know calls you and says, "Hey, should I really call this guy?" You go, "You better call him." 
Otherwise, you know, I won't call that, but they call me, they will hear from me, we'll talk about it, and anything that I can do to help the family navigate next steps, um, that's what I'm all about. All right, Thanks man. Thanks for the opportunity. You got it, Scott. Thanks, brother.